is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listen in colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. That was Aretha Franklin with I Say a Little Prayer, a very iconic number two. Good morning, this is Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, here on Jazz FM. Thank you very much for joining me. Jazz Shapers is the place where you can hear the very best of the people shaping the world of jazz, blues and soul. And right alongside them, we bring someone who's shaping the world of business, and we call them business shapers. I'm really pleased to say my business shaper today is Simon Franks. And Simon Franks is a founder at least twice over, founder of the Red Bus Film Distribution Business, also one of the founders of Love Film. You'll have heard of them. I'm sure, and also founder and chairman of the Franks Family Foundation, because this man in front of me is also a major philanthropist, not to mention politics and many other things which you'll be hearing all about very shortly. In addition to hearing from Simon, you'll be hearing from programme partners at Mishkondorea, some words of advice for your business. And then we've got some fantastic music from the shapers of jazz, blues and soul. Marvin Gaye is in there, China Moses, Bill Withers, and this from the great South African trumpeter, none other than Hugh Masakela. Hugh Masakela with Grazing in the Grass. This is Jazz Shapers, and Simon Franks is my business shaper today. Founder more than once and a very active philanthropist. We're going to start at the beginning, though. Simon, thank you for joining me. At the very beginning. At the very beginning, hopefully. Tell me, Simon, you became a wealthy guy at a young age. You sold your business called Red Bus, which you sold to Lionsgate, I believe. No, actually, that was the the first business I sold. I sold to a company called Helcom, which was a German public company. And that was uh, in sort of 99, 2000 time when, as you said, I was, I was pretty young. It was a bit of a life-changing moment. Tell me about the the bit before though. You weren't you you, you weren't in the film business, were you? Was it, no, was no. You? I, so I didn't have any money, and I grew up in in a community. I didn't know many people who would have money to back me. So I I, I went into. I asked my uh, lecturer at university. You know, I want to have my own business, but I have no money. What do I do? And he said to me, "Well, that's easy, banking." I said, "Oh, really?" And so, and what, what did you study at university? I did uh, management science at UMIS, a, a university that doesn't exist anymore. It's now part of the University of Manchester. Mm. But still in my heart. Still in your heart. I can see that through your eyes. <laughs> tell, tell me, though. So, you, so he said, go into the world of banking. Yeah. So I went. So I got a job in banking, uh, which was fascinating and terrible. And um, and I said to myself, and I saw lots of great people get trapped in the system of just being addicted to the money. Uh, and I, but I said to myself, when I get to X, and it wasn't an enormous amount. I think it was around a hundred thousand pounds, which is a lot, obviously, but but not going to you know change the world. Mm. Um, but when I got to that amount, I'm walking out the door. And and uh, that's more or less what happened. And you walked out the door and then you go, I know what, I'm going to set up a film business. No, no. Because that um, would be quite, that would be no, a, a big I, it, leap, wouldn't it? It would be a big leap. I mean, one of the things I say to lots of other entrepreneurs that I, that I, that I speak with is um, often your first idea isn't the idea you end up on. And often in researching the idea and starting along the road of the first idea, you end up finding another idea. And that's 
where where we got to. I started off by by saying that w- the the Bowie bonds. I don't know if you remember that. That was when David Bowie ran out of money and securitized his music rights. I thought, wow, what a great idea! I'm I'm going to do that for film rights. I'm going to go to all these film producers and say, hey, guess what? I'll pay you up front for the royalties to your movies because they create an interesting library and, a, and an income stream. Uh, th- that original idea, which I thought was absolutely inspired, turned out to be less than inspired. Um, but it led me to a, a new world of understanding about, of learning about the film industry and the mechanics of the film industry. And that led me to, in, in a random event, in the way the universe sort of has led my life, to getting a call from a guy called Cliff Stanford, who had created Demon Internet, which was like the first internet provider in the UK. And he's, an, he's a really unusual character. And basically, he, he, we, he, we ended up doing some, some work together. He was very keen to be involved with films. And he said something to me one day. He said, you know, I'm really upset. When I sold Demon, I think it was to Scottish Telecom, he said, I was really upset because I had this group of research and development guys, young, real geeky internet people who were great. But the work they were doing, the Scottish Telecom don't want. And so they, they, they're sort of firing them all. I said, well, what do these guys do? He said, oh, it's something, uh, it's ridiculous. They've got this idea that you could stream movies down the internet. And I went, Sorry. Is that possible? He said, well, it's not possible today, but conceptually, it is possible. This is, you know, 1997, 8 we're talking mm-hmm. about. And I went, I've got to meet these guys. And I went to meet these guys in some dungeon in East London. And um, I just was blown away and I hired them. I didn't have any money at the time, but they were about to be fired anyway. So I thought this, this is a no-risk situation. So I hired them all. And that led to us developing a, a streaming technology. And we were arguably the first in the world, certainly the first in Europe, but arguably the first in the world to stream a whole movie across the internet. And I remember we did it. We had to do it from Docklands to the West End because that was the only place which had fast enough ki- uh, fiber to be able to actually do it. But we did it. And we had this compression technology, which I'm not going to talk about because it sounds quite dull. But we, we, we developed this, this thing purely by luck. And that's, that was my first business, in effect. Stay with me for more from my business shaper and the um, story is going to un- unfold right in front of you, I hope. That's Simon Franks, um, founder of uh, Redbus Film Distribution, founder, one of the founders of Love Film, and as you said uh, earlier, uh, someone who's let the universe guide him to a point, I guess. Time for some more music. This is Marvin Gaye with Mercy, Mercy Me. That was Marvin Gaye with Mercy, Mercy Me. Simon Franks is my business shaper today. He's been talking about bumping into the man behind Demon, which was one of the first um, internet service providers, I believe, um, way back in the day. Funny so, how life works, right? It is funny how life works, Simon. And what I just I just want to go back a bit, because you, you, you talked very briefly about you came from not a, a, a well-off family. People talk about entrepreneurs a lot and what drives them. You seem to me uh, immediately quite clear on what you think um, and and kind of like you're gonna you're gonna go and chase something and you chase something there you just said you know I hired some people I didn't I mean there was nothing to lose they were, they were fired anyway where did that drive and that assurance come from do you think I, I, I don't know I think I've been in that kind of sense confidence since birth I've always felt that I could just make it happen somehow I won't don't confuse security and, and confidence I was always a, a confident guy not the most secure guy maybe so 
you know, but but very confident about my abilities and, and what I could do. And and just to go back when you say, I mean, I think the reason you talk about the background it came from is that people presume if they meet you and you've got money that that's mm. you've always come from having a lot of money and you don't understand the experiences of not having money. And and that's not true. You know, my grandfather uh, originally when he was young worked in the railways. My parents met in an M&M shop where they both worked at at, at the same time. Um, uh, my mum worked for MS her whole career. Uh, my father later on in life had some success in business and did, did really well. And, and but but when I was growing up, you know, I went to comprehensive schools and my experience of life was certainly not a wealthy one. And I think that, you know, it, it, I do try and bring tell people that because I think, you know, otherwise they had this imagination. I grew up in a palace somewhere and I, mm. and I, and I didn't. But we're going to come on later to the philanthropy because it, it strikes me you have a very inherent sense of justice and what is right and what isn't. And I wonder where that might come from. Well, I'm really I'm really glad you actually put, expressed it in that way because actually, I, in some ways, I think it's, it didn't start from altruism. It started from, I just don't like seeing in, un, mm. injustice. There's so, a bit of so, anger almost. Yeah, no, there's definitely anger. If I'm honest, there's definitely anger. Um, I'm trying to reduce that as I get older. Uh, uh, but there's definitely anger and I want to hold on to some of that because the way we run our world is in incredibly unjust. And and I just don't understand it. I think we'd all be better off if we did it a little bit fairer. Uh, and that's been something since childhood. I've never liked seeing unfairness. I never liked the bully. I mean, I was always the guy who hated the bully. Um, and I don't, I, and I feel that you know, perhaps society as a whole, we could start focusing on just making life more just. Mm. You know, life doesn't have to be easy, but it, it has to be just. And we're going to come. We're going to come back to that. I want to jump back into you meet these guys in the dungeon. You or the person, yeah. they, and then you you go and hire them. What then? Just just capture those first few years of creating your this business that actually was going to fly. Well, I mean, the irony is that when I started the business, I obviously didn't have enough money to have my own office. I mean, so I'd had enough money, as I said, from banking that I could not earn any money for a couple of years. And so I, I literally went into my spare bedroom, which um, my girlfriend at the time and I used as our dressing room. It was a tiny little, it was the size of, you know, may, maybe a small bathroom. It was very modest. You anyway, know, I took out all, uh, all out all the clothes, put in a desk, and that became the start of, of, of our company. And, and I remember it was really hard to sort of get people to take it seriously because it was a small spare bedroom in a, in a flat above a restaurant, you know, uh, in North London. Uh, but to me, it became the centre of my empire, even though the empire was just me. Uh, but but you have to believe and um, and work hard. And I did believe and I did work hard and get luck. And and But this belief in working hard is one thing. Many people might have a bit of belief. Many people might work hard. But what do you think was the magic ingredient that allowed this, this thing called Red Bus to actually fly? Um, I think for me, I mean, I, I, I think I'm in some ways quite good at innovating but I'm also quite negative and I think that's a really good combination because I discard bad ideas quite quickly and I don't flog dead horses and and when I've made a mistake I put my hands up and I change course you know there's that phrase where you say you know when, when the situation changes you know I change what do you do and I really believe in that and and I, I tell a lot of entrepreneurs don't you know if you got it wrong f- accept on. it move on quickly and I was very good at that so all of the sort of ridiculous ideas that came across my desk I very quickly discovered them to be ridiculous and mm. moved on and just before we go, we go to the travel, I want to ask you one quick question about the money. So the money lands in your account. You sold the business. This is the guy who's come from your background, yeah. who's not been used to that kind of money, as you, as you said. What did that feel like? It was it was a very, very surreal experience. And I didn't really want anyone to know. I didn't do any press about it. Didn't only told literally one or two of my friends. I just literally put the money in the bank, didn't touch it, stayed living above the restaurant with my best mate. Um, I just wanted life to be normal and to take times to think about it. I, I just, you know, I was quite a show off when I was young, which was, you know, I, and and I didn't want to be a show off. I knew I didn't want to be that person, so I literally thought, well, the only way to do that is not to spend it, because otherwise you can start showing off quite easily with that kind of money. Uh, so I did nothing, but it it, it did different. It, it did make me feel a little bit 
uh, set uh, set aside from other people living their life who I knew had the sort of financial struggles that most people are having. And that, that I felt a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe that politically shaped some of my views uh, later on. Mm. Anyway, that, there you go. Stay with me for um, my intriguing uh, guest here who's revealing um, how strange it can feel, I guess, to have money in the bank and not necessarily want anyone to know about it. Uh, much more come up from Simon Franks, my business shaper. Latest travel in a couple of minutes. And before that, some words of wisdom, I hope, from our programme partners at Mishkondoret for your burgeoning business idea. I'm Sonal Gandhi. I'm a partner in the real estate group at Mishkondorea. I act for the private individual and their companies in buying and selling high-end residential properties in central London, as well as acting for private banks in their secured lending work um, on residential properties. The most important thing to know about working on complicated transactions is to effectively appoint a pivotal person that's going to act as the project manager of that transaction. Invariably, there's going to be a number of parties involved. It goes without saying that with so many people involved in a transaction, things can start going astray. So it's essential to have a go-to person. It's very much like that person is the conductor of an orchestra. All of the players are musicians in that orchestra. They each have a piece of music to read. Without that conductor, they're not going to play in tune, in harmony, to get the end result. Therefore, my advice is to have that person who can control, who can communicate and ensure that all parties are cooperating together. Too many cooks, disaster. They all start going off on their own agenda without having that person to essentially manage the process and effectively deliver that goal for that client. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You're listening to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss. Every Saturday I get to meet someone who's doing something interesting and who's shaping the world of business. If you've missed any of my fabulous guests, go into iTunes, uh, put in the words Jazz and Shapers. CTAM.com is another destination. British Airways, if you're flying soon, you can find us there on uh, the High Life radio channel. Simon Franks is my business shaper today. Um, the man behind Love Film, the man behind Red Bus, and the man behind the Franks Family Foundation, which since around 2006 has been giving away lots of money. And we're going to come to that not just money but expertise as well so you sell this business the money's in the bank we were talking about that there's a strange feeling that feeling of kind of uh, what you do next you don't stop there though you've obviously got other ideas that are still going and you put the money to one side what's your focus because it's not money you're not driven by the money are you at that no, point I don't, I don't i don't think were you ever driven by i the was money? driven by not being poor i Versus, can tell you that okay but actually no because i mean I, I'm, I'm probably poorer now than i was 15 years ago so and I don't have to be I, I mean I don't think money is my drive uh, and obviously the foundation gives away a lot of the, a lot of the money that I had so I, I guess if money was my drive I wouldn't be doing that but but obviously it's, it's, it's a score it's a measure of success I guess in some in some ways and so and, and I'd rather have it than not have it um, but turning to what you asked about what happened next so so I had a, a business partner called uh, Ziggy Kamasa and he and I originally had this idea to be distributing films and buying film rights and securitizing films, all that kind of thing. And so Ziggy and I, all of these distractions sort of came and went, sort of the whole internet thing and, and the, the compressing images and all that kind of stuff. But Ziggy and I, underneath that, had also been trying to build this distribution business. And we had another strike, a strike of luck when Universal bought Polygram Music and then closed down the film business, which was like the number one distributor in the UK and, and a great company. They did so many great British films, Lockstock and Four Weddings, those kind of things. So Ziggy and I went sort of rocked up to 
the team at Polygram and said, well, and you've heard this before, you're all about to be fired. How would you like to come and work for us? <laughs> um, we can't actually guarantee you we can pay you for very long, but who knows? Uh, at least but we can, we can hire you together as a team. And they were very keen to stay together as a team. So we literally hired them lock, stock and barrel. And uh, uh, and they joined us, uh, and thank God we had a hit straight away. Was and that Bend It Like Beckham? No, way before that. Maybe Baby. Thank God Ben Elton made that film. Um, and that that was a that was a hit for us. Got us in a lot of traction, and then all of a sudden the doors opened up. And then we and then we made some great films, which went on to do very well. And in the film business, if you have hits, you're in you're in good shape. Now, did you was was film a passion, or was it just a vehicle for you? Well, f- film is my passion. In fact, film and music are, are my passions. Right. They, they they move me in ways that nothing else does in terms of the arts. Um, but uh, one of the things I told you is that I'm very, I'm, I'm also quite negative, mm. and and that negativity leads me to know that that love making films you love is not a very good way to build a business. Uh, I focus on making films that I believe had commercial uh, potential and that the risk reward made them worth making, which sounds really unromantic. But one thing I can say and I'm proud of is later on as we were a success, I, uh, I we started doing some films that I was passionate about, which we lost money on, but I felt proud that I did them. Save me for more from my business show today. That's Simon Frank. It's time for some more music. This is Bill Withers and Use Me. My friends feel as they're appointed duty. Bill Withers with Use Me. Simon Frank's in my business shaper, um, and we've been talking about all sorts of things and about passion versus commerciality. And you, you've obviously got your you got your fix through film. You talked to me about loving film, yeah. and and you quite rightly said, you know, important to know when it's not going to work, but you're doing it for a different reason. Yeah. And obviously, you're afforded that luxury as things start to go well. There have been some fabulous films. I should have mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Maybe Baby, uh, Good Night and Good Luck, Bend It Like Beckham. Nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, I mean, really big, big numbers. When you're in that scene, is it? A, were you taking with that? I'm going to call it baggage, but don't take it the wrong way. Were you taking with that? I can't be showy off in here. I'm now in this film world, but I must be. You must have been full of pride that the was, guy from Collindale, Edgware, <laughs> is suddenly here, and there's red carpets, and there's money, and there's and there's you've made your films. Yeah, I, I I was full of I was full of pride, but I tried to play that guy, the sort of the understated cool guy in the room, where you thought, well, who's he? And then it turns out, oh, he owns the company. That was the guy I tried to play that role. Did you play it well? I had some successes. I mean, obviously, I was focused at that time on on, uh, on female uh, uh, appreciation, and, <laughs> yes. and there were some actors along the way who thought that is quite a cool guy in the corner. But uh, after a while, I had to grow up and and, and be uh, yourself. And be myself. Yeah, and, I, wasn't, and I actually wasn't that cool guy in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. So, but that that in that that phase, this is now your thirties and things like yeah. that. Your early thirties. Were there moments when were there sort of mini epiphanies along the way where you said, you know what, I just need to be myself? And if so, what were they? <clears throat> to be honest, the film industry is is full of people who are not very good at being themselves and uh, I met some wonderful people in it but there's also a lot of people where the the absolute desire for fame and uh, to be recognised is overwhelming and I don't think it's necessarily the most healthy of desires there's there's a lot of bad behaviour in it and um, ultimately I I found it somewhat depressing I thought the British film scene was great actually it was really when you start hitting LA that it got very depressing. Mm. 
the film thing kind of comes to an end. I'm just going to jump forward a little yeah. bit now to when... Well, it doesn't come to an end. Lionsgate buy it. Sorry, Lionsgate buy it, but in, in the sense of you now saying my full, where my focus is going to be is less about running these businesses and more about doing is giving back. I mean, to use that, to use that phrase. When did, that, when did you decide? Obviously, you've been thinking about philanthropy and what do I do with this money and what do I do with your intellect and your desire, your anger in the pursuit of justice, to, to, to use that phrase for a moment. When did that translate itself into the Franks Family Foundation? When did that actually become a real thing in your next your next creation? Okay, so this is this is an, a point I've I've made to other people thinking about philanthropy. So when I sold the business to Lionsgate in in I think two thousand and five, I said to myself I, I really want to put a portion of this into into philanthropic causes. But of course I was in, in the deal I had to stay working for them for a while, and so I, but I I had that instinct then, so I put the money then there and then into a foundation, which means you can't get it back. Uh, which is really good because, you know, two years later, maybe I would have lost my desire to, you know, that sense of oh, I'm giving this away. And so you, I sort of locked myself into it, which which is a good thing. And then when I when I left Lionsgate, which was a couple of years after the deal, um, I, I'd had some other success with some investments we'd made in other startup companies around 2000, 2002, when there'd been some real troubles, you know, in, in, in the economy. And so I had quite a lot of small businesses around that were flourishing, and I felt very confident financially. And I thought, this is it. This is a time where I want to do something for the world rather than for myself. And so the foundation's original idea was, because I'm by no means a billionaire, so the money I had was not going to change the world in the force of the money. But I thought, I'm, a, I'm pretty good at innovating. I'm pretty good at organizing. Why don't I spend five years of my life I've totally focused on 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 a diff on using those skills in a different uh, circumstance, and 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 that's how the foundation started. We'll be talking more about that foundation in a little bit than that's in my final chat with Simon. Plus, we're playing a track for another choice, actually. Um, we've given um, Simon two choices today. I know, I know. He's the arch negotiator, as I've discovered. How can already. you be interviewed on a jazz show and not have two choices? It's so true. But don't, 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 don't tell anyone else, because then everyone else will want one. Or, I think or two, I rather. I think you might have done as well. Um, so we're playing a track from uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. That's coming up after the latest Traffic and Travel. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business but it's personal. It ain't necessarily so. One of the song choices of the two that Simon Franks has negotiated with me, that was Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Fabulous it was too. Um, Simon, we've we've talked briefly about all sorts of things and we, we've come to this point about philanthropy. And um, Tell me about why more entrepreneurs ought to do what you've gone and done. Or rather, more entrepreneurial people, because not, it's not going to be everyone's choice to, to yeah. give their money away and give their time yeah. away. Yeah, because I, th- I think that the problems in the developing world, in, and we work in uh, Bhutan, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Nepal, uh, and, and a little bit in India, the problems in, in these countries is, are not going to be solved by money alone. Um, so really, I think it's about entrepreneurs who, who want to, to, to engage, spending time there on the ground, using their skills at organisation, at problem solving, at getting around roadblocks to bring about the change that makes those, those countries uh, more successful and more, and, and, uh, uh, more uh, prosperous. And I think that my foundation has 
focus a lot on what we can do. Obviously, we use the money to back up the ideas we have, but we see ourselves as like an R&D arm or a, a sort of a venture capital firm for uh, good ideas in the developing world. And it's good ideas that are going to change things. It's not just a waste of money, because I can tell you I've seen billions of dollars wasted, uh, sadly, in, in, in the desire to make the world a better place. Actually, it's about brain power and the money, not just the money. Do people come to you and say, how are you doing it? Can we get some of what you're doing? To be honest, what, what I'm really proud about is that some other foundations, often or people wealthier than me, have, have, have said, I'm really interested in how you're doing that. Can, can you talk to us about that? And I've started to do that, and I'm loving that, because mm. actually, I'm not super rich guy. So the, my money will run out in, in a couple of years in terms of the foundation. And unless I make more money, I won't have any more money to put in. Um, but I'm hoping that there'll be lots of other wealthy people out there who also really want to engage with the developing world, help to improve the, the situation there, uh, but actually want to do it in a clever way. And hopefully they'll ask me and say, how did you do that? And and, and how would you do this? And, and I think that, that excites me. And hopefully that will let my foundation live on when we run out of money. So that combination of the of the anger as a kid against the bully, the combination with ju- that, that justice sits in the middle of it, naturally all roads start to lead to politics. And and you have been involved as an advisor to Ed Balls, I believe, in the past. And you're involved in some international development stuff as well. And you've stood up and been counted as one of the business leaders behind the the, the, the left and or was the left yeah. and the Labour Party as it was then defined. And and it's obviously things of, of shifting the whole time. What about the future for you? Is it going to involve politics, do you think? Well, let's be clear about one thing. You cannot change the world if you're not in politics. That is my view. There's lots of things you can do to make the world a hell of a better place. And people like Bill Gates are are doing an amazing job of doing that. But if you ultimately want to change the world, you have to be in government and you have to change the way we manage this planet of ours. And personally, I've, I've had the view that if I'm able to get into a situation of power where I can actually try and make the changes to make this world fairer, more just, more dynamic, more tolerant, then, I, then, then I'd like to do that. And why don't more people like you do it? Is there an issue with this whole fake news thing? Is there an issue with this whole kind of issue where pe- people talk about your lives in ways that you wouldn't necessarily want? I mean, transparency, supposedly purporting to be transparency, is something else. Well, I've, I've started an organisation which I'm, which I'm very excited about, which is trying to encourage other people to come into politics. I think there's too many career politicians who basically that's their entire career is just to get to be an MP. It's not about what they want to do. I want to get more young people, more people with experience and success in different fields. I want great doctors. I want great scientists. I want great business people to go into politics, but not for 50 years and sit on the back benches doing nothing. To go there for 10 years, 15 years, give the benefit of their experience and help make this country what it should be. We are a country of brilliant, brilliant thinkers, brilliant scientists. We have shown our steel in world wars. Yeah, I just think that the way we're running our country, we could do such a better job and this country could be so much better than it is today. I like that, and I think we're going to stop there because I think we're going to vote for you if you get in, uh, if you decide to actually stand, Simon. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, the second song choice, of course, the first one was Ain't Necessarily So, which I think applies to fake news and that so much is not exactly what we read today, which is a shame. Um, the second choice is Gone Fishing, which I'm picking for a few reasons. One, I just think it makes me feel like human beings love each other. Listen to Bing and Louie, you just think they're best friends. And also it just feels like a time in when people were kind and, and enjoyed the simple things, which I think we've lost a lot. But also my father loved Bing Crosby and I thank him for introducing me to that. Uh, and, and also my grandfather, my mum's father was also a big fan. So I think there's a family connection to it. And, and just listen to the voices and the happiness. These guys love each other and we need a lot more love. Simon, thank you so much. I'll tell you why I can't find you. Every time I go out to your place, you gone fishing. Ah, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Uh Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. (laughs) You ain't working anymore. Could be. 
There's your hole out in the sun Where you left a row half done that was Gone Fishing from Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby, the song choice of my business shaper today, Simon Franks. Someone who understood that his negativity was an attribute and enabled him to focus on what was right versus focusing on what was wrong. Someone who not only spotted opportunities, but actually followed through and did something about them. And someone who has always had a very strong sense of justice, which has informed the way he's done business and all his philanthropic work that he continues to do today. Really brilliant, brilliant stuff. Do join me again, same time, same place. That's 9am sharp here on Jazz FM next Saturday. Meantime, stay with us because coming up next, it's Nigel Williams. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Condorea. It's business, but it's personal. <laughs>